welcome to the Property Academy Podcast. I'm your host, Ian McKnight. And I'm Andrew Nichol. And today on the show, we are joined by Jenny Turner, who is a partner at Wynn Williams. This is episode 601, talking about relationship property. Now, I remember we did an episode not that long ago, Andrew, talking about why you need it. But I wanted to get Jenny in on the show today so we could talk about more of the details around how to do it, how much it costs. And to hear a couple of horror stories, because I know we've been talking about these in the office recently as well. But let me ask you this, Jenny. How do I know whether I'm in a de facto relationship and that I've already crossed the threshold and my property is shared? Are you checking for your own benefit here? Do you just want to confirm that you and Kelly are in fact in a de facto relationship? (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes Kelly questions whether we're in a relationship at all, I'm sure. Well, Ed, one of the main factors it comes down to is time. There's a general threshold in the Act of three years. And in terms of some of the provisions in the Act that kick in around equal presumption of sharing, it's three years living together in a de facto relationship. So it's not three years of dating. It's not three years of staying there one night a week necessarily. It's three years of living together in a committed relationship in the nature of marriage. When you say living together, so as any single male will remember, there comes a time where you notice an ample number of bobby pins appearing in your house and an extra toothbrush and a few clothes in what was your sock drawer. So how do you actually draw the line and define now you're living there? So there's another whole layer of factors that kick in over this. So there's the duration of the relationship, the nature and extent of the common residence. So is it the bobby pins on the bedside table after Saturday night or are they there (laughs) Monday through Sunday and actually you're living together, you're doing the groceries together? Usually Uh, I'm leaving my bobby pins (laughs) on her, her bedside table. Fresh haircuts are maybe not needed this week. And then there's other factors. So sexual relationship, are you owning, using, acquiring property together? Nothing to say there. Um, <laughs> he just went red. <laughs> I didn't know I needed to document <laughs> that. No. Uh, yeah, if you're talking to lawyers around this, you'll be sharing quite a bit of information around your relationship. So it uh, gets right down to performance of household duties. And one of the other factors is the reputation and the public aspect of your relationship. So would others consider you to be in a relationship? So there's a whole lot of layers and factors in there. And then you come to this living together piece. And then from there, that's where I guess the clock starts in terms of the three-year period, which has some quite significant effects under the Act in terms of how relationships are treated. And generally, we're looking at the other end when the separation happens. Was it pre-three years or was it post-three years? And is that three years very line in the sand? So if you're two years, 11 months for every relationship, you're sweet? Or can it be considered de facto even if it hasn't quite been three years? The latter. So there's that element of assessing things and the factors there. And I think if you were two years, 11 months, there's probably an argument either side of the fence to be had at that point as well. But the point is, I guess, with all of the conversation that we're going to have today is don't wait for three years together <laughs> and then start having the conversations that we're suggesting you have because the implications under the law are quite different on that three year living together. And actually job. I got a message on Instagram from one of the listeners saying how do you start that conversation which I think I suggested wine is a great way to start the conversation but how do you recommend you start that conversation? I think within that three year period of starting to live together 
you know, discussing the future, presumably at some point in there, you're going to have a discussion about what your future plans are and say in the property sphere, you know, it'll become quite evident if one of you's got more money to put through for a deposit for an investment or you're going to be moving into someone's home that they owed pre-relationship. And so under the Act, if you do nothing, over time that will become the family home, which has the presumption of equal sharing probably not what you want for the equity that you've put down on that home, which was yours pre-relationship. So I think it will come around. Probably if you've got more assets pre-relationship to protect on exit, you might have a bit more of a catalyst for raising that conversation. Yeah, and maybe the wine will help. So let me ask you this, Jenny. If I've got no money and I've got no money, do I still need one of these? Probably not. But you need to look forward to the future. So is someone going to perhaps pass away and then some inheritance coming? Is there a nature of a big deposit or asset coming your way that will change that? But if you're both ticking along, it's just you, there's no family wealth or money coming from one side of the relationship, then by all means, just truck on through life. And if you get to the point where it becomes lopsided, maybe one person's income's taken off and you want to revisit that conversation, do it then. Just on that, say your assets and liabilities are pretty equal, but someone's income is much, much higher. Can a relationship property agreement account for things like income? To a degree, that's a classic lawyer answer, but you would not want to be ring-fencing everything. The Act doesn't look favourably on a contracting out agreement that's signed and then that relationship doesn't work out and someone's attempted to ring-fence everything and just say, my income is my income forever. And then you might get to the point where someone's had a child, someone's been out of the workforce, but their income has dropped for the benefit of the family unit and the relationship, as if their KiwiSaver contributions, relationship busts up, and obviously their financial positions are different due to their different contributions. Asking for a friend who has, <laughs> who has looked favourably on those sorts of clauses, Jenny, how do I make sure that I set up my relationship property agreement so that it can't be challenged? So you need to account for the unknown, which is tricky, but that's where the good advice piece comes in. So what are your future wishes? Do you think you'll have a family? Is there some inheritance coming? Income potential of the two of you likely to become quite disparate over time? and making sure in some instances that you might have a partial sunset clause in there. So after X amount of years together, what I'm trying to ring fence might reduce down to acknowledge that there needs to be a greater relationship property pool for the agreement to come out the other side unchallenged. So again, asking for a friend, my friend was negotiating a relationship (laughs) property agreement and he had a trust in place and his partner's lawyer said that trusts don't matter anymore. So why does he have one? Is that true, Jenny? No, I wouldn't say it is, Ed. Trusts have their place. If you have a trust pre-relationship, you would want that to be expressly acknowledged in the contract down agreement as your separate property. If you are living in the trust property as your family home, you probably want some clauses around that because I suspect that if someone's entered into a trust structure pre-relationship, you want to maintain that until probably a very future point in time where perhaps everything's become quite intermingled and you're happy for that to be shared. But you wouldn't be anticipating that when you're signing a contracting out agreement or your friend is. <laughs> <laughs> and now just thinking about like, you know, your comment about things being fair. So you say someone has got a property and it is tied up in a trust and it's protected by a contracting out agreement and then someone moves in and they start paying half the mortgage. It would be pretty unfair for that not to be considered later on down the track that they've contributed to the household expenses, right? 
Yeah, so I would, if I've been mentioning fairness, you probably want to take a step back because it's more about making an informed decision. The law won't say that it has to be fair. In fact, if you've got a validly signed agreement, it has to be seriously unjust to be overturned, so that's a high threshold. I would strongly advise that that payment's categorised as rent. So you don't want contributions to be made in the form of mortgages, maintenance, anything that gets grey in terms of, well, I financially contributed to the asset of this trust of which I've got no entitlement and now I'd like to bring a claim or raise the ability to have an entitlement back from that separate asset. And just before we get into any of these horror stories, I should mention the only reason Andrew and I are laughing is that we're both so awkward and these conversations are so awkward that sometimes you just have to laugh at them and make jokes. I've got a question just around if you're already in a de facto relationship and it's suggested that you get a contracting out agreement later on down the track, can you still get one or is it too late? No, never too late. What I would say with the legal advisor hat on is it's harder to advise someone that has a default 50% entitlement than someone that isn't yet entitled to that. So one year better than four years into that de facto setup. And the other point is, is you can agree what you want between yourselves, but legally in order for it to be binding, you need it to have it signed by a lawyer. So it's not just one of you going to see the same lawyer, it's each of you having your own independent advice. So if you have the discussions around the table together, perhaps you need to speak with family, get their views on if there are significant family contributions or pieces of property and that form part of the puzzle and then bring your common intentions to one lawyer. It's a much easier starting point than one of you going to see the lawyer and then coming home, hey honey, I've been to the lawyers today and this is what they're saying. (laughs) It doesn't really enable you to move forward probably as a couple in a more cost-effective way and and some relationships never make it to pen and paper with the contracting out agreement. Yeah, actually, I, I have a friend who has just gone through that. He's been negotiating a relationship property agreement for, hopefully he's listening, you know who I'm talking about, and they were maybe six months away from ticking over de facto by default, and the negotiations have become tense. And so the relationship has been put on pause whilst they reconsider the options there. So it does become awkward. So it is better to have that conversation earlier. Another one of my friends, I've got unlucky friends at the moment. They were already in a de facto relationship when they set up a contracting out agreement with actually some of the advice from one Williams, what he's been told by his now ex, his lawyer, that the contracting out agreement is null and void because it wasn't witnessed by two lawyers. And so neither received independent advice. And one party was, of course, giving up some rights there, as you say before, because they were going from a default position of 50% to less than 50%. And so now basically that's torn up and they've got to negotiate from scratch as if there wasn't one. And the unfortunate thing is that's probably come too little too late, given that it's at the end of the relationship in that instance. It's much easier to negotiate when it's all hypothetical rather than when it all becomes real and the relationship has broken down for some reason. Let me ask you this, Jenny. You're a partner at a big name law firm. How much does it cost to put a relationship property agreement together? So, classic lawyer answer here, fact dependent always, but if you have the conversation with your other half and you've got those common intentions, then generally our standard contracting agreement would be between two and a half to three thousand dollars plus GST and disbursements. Now that doesn't involve the other person's independent legal advice? That's correct. And I presume the other sides would be slightly cheaper because they're just advising them, they're not writing the document. That's right, neither, only one lawyer can draft it. Obviously it will go over to the other side, but you take the approach that if it's a form-based rather than substance that you, you get on with it so long as it achieves what it needs to for both parties. Obviously, if things become protracted and drag out, I'd say the fees will increase as well. 
And tell me, Jenny, how do I go about negotiating one of these? Should I be playing hardball at home or should everything go through <laughs> Depends you? Depends if you want to sleep on the couch, Ed. I was asking for a friend. <laughs> I think you should come into it with perhaps some non-negotiables, things that you're not prepared to move on. And a lot of it might be blood, sweat and tears pre the relationship. But if the ultimate goal is that you're in a relationship, you're building a combined life together, I think there will probably be some concessions to be made. But referring back to my earlier point, that might be on a time basis. It might not be right now when you're signing the thing. It might be that you're prepared to move on some of the points or some equity in properties or whatever it might be over time so that the relationship stood the test of time and there's some acknowledgement that, uh, you know, your wealth and your asset pool has been able to grow because of that relationship, if that is the case. So you might say, look, if we get married in five or ten years, maybe that's when I can share or some of my assets might become relationship property? Certainly, and in, in the case of, the, say, the family home, it might have been yours pre-relationship, but if you move into that, that becomes your family home over time, you'll move to that 50-50 presumption of equal sharing. And the other point I'd make on that is that some contracting out agreements will have a straight-up sunset clause in it. So if we get married, end of it. If we have children, end of it. That might be driven by strong personal view rather than legal advice, but certainly there's a way to make it work future-looking and... I think, yeah, if you discuss it as a couple before the lawyers are involved, it probably goes a long way to making sure the relationship survives the process. Now, come on, Jenny, you've got to give us some horror stories. (laughs) (laughs) I think the worst horror stories are where that future-looking piece hasn't happened. So you haven't thought about what if we get married. You haven't thought about if we have kids. You haven't thought about, well, what if I sell that property and I use my equity and I go again? And therefore you're actually opening up for the dispute, the uncertainty down the track. So I'm not going to give you horror stories in terms of the actual fallout, but I can say that awful things to be involved in when a contracting out agreement turns into a separation dispute. Come on, Andrew, you must have seven on tap. (laughs) (laughs) Just of my own. One of the things there is that we often don't want to muddy the waters with assets. So if you've got assets protected by relationship property, say you sell a property that was covered by relationship property and you take the proceeds and you put it against your personal house for a while, which is shared, and then you take it back out and you go and buy another investment property, you kind of taint your money and you open yourself up for exposure there. So you're better just to have a very clean transaction when it comes to that kind of stuff, right? That's exactly right. And I'd say the same with inheritance. That's something that often gets thrown into the joint account to offset some debt and then you try and extract it out later, but it's fairly grey and intermingled and you've moved house three times by then. So it's no good. And I do have a funny story for the for the listeners. So I was having dinner with uh, I can't tell you which accountant it is because because we don't we don't want to get in trouble. A couple of weeks which ago, which city was it? It was in Auckland at Solbar. And he told me one of the partners in their firm who's a lawyer. A very clever lawyer was representing one of their clients in a contracting out agreement. And one of the slightly unusual clauses, you hear about it with celebrities all the time, is this infidelity clause. And so what's that mean? Well, Kelly, you should be, you get this in sooner, Kelly. And so basically the way it works is if one partner cheats on the other, then all of a sudden, you know, there might be a financial penalty. Penalty. Yeah. Anyway, the lawyer for the other side for the lady, said, we want this infidelity clause, to which the lawyer for the guy said, that's absolutely fine, we agree we should have that. What we're also going to have is a performance clause. And they said, what the hell does that mean? Well, we're going to set out the number of times per week that we're going to have relations and in a performance, a satisfaction (laughs) chart on there. And if 
Not uh, a chart, mate. Not a chart. <laughs> like, a, like a report card. And if it's not lived up to, then he's got every right to go out and fulfil his needs elsewhere. Anyway, they managed to maintain the relationship, but the other side didn't find it that funny. But I suppose as a negotiation tactic there, they were trying to use humour in order to get their point across. Fantastic. Let's wrap it up there. But please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. Really helps us get the message out to more people. listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ebert Knight. And I'm Andrew Nichols. And we're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most out of the New Zealand property market. Until next time.